This is Dylan. This is Nick. And you're listening to Colloquium. All right, Nick, it's a joy to have you here today. Thanks. Yeah, happy Sunday. Um, yeah, so we, uh, for our listeners, we recently started going to the same parish. I was so, going to bring uh, that up as or well. Or you really, I yeah. beat you to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's good. Yeah, it's good to it's good to have, uh, actually, a lot of young adults are going to this, this same parish in, in Huntsville, so it's good to have everybody in kind of central location. Yeah, so I uh, I sat with your brother, Zachary right. John, as we call him. Indeed. And uh, yeah, he, he came in in the back there, and you know, I was sitting sitting in the back where I sit on my right side and he was like looking for you he like and I think he saw you but he couldn't quite uh couldn't quite get to where you were so I was the next best option and <laughs> That's right. uh, he sat next to me and we were able to you know pray together and do the sign of peace together and all, all that stuff so but no I actually was just reflecting on the joy of local community and I think at at the parish we're going to is is great, um, and then just like kind of the fact that like yeah you and your brother are, are living together now and, and going to the same parish and everything and just yeah the joy of of going to a parish where I know people really well yeah um, it's just really a beautiful thing that is awesome it gives you a sense that that's kind of how it's supposed to be done you know what I mean yeah like, no, uh, absolutely just yeah kind of growing up and raising families and. You know, just doing life together in the same neighborhood, yeah, uh, more or less. Yeah, and I mean, we're living in the town we grew up in, which I, you know, I think that a lot of people go off and do, go on their own and live their own place, and they don't really think much about their hometown. But I think that, especially in a globalized world in this day and age, that we're missing a lot in terms of local community, and. I just want to encourage anybody who's, you know, in a transient period, you're not settled down yet. Just consider, consider going back to your hometown. Consider going back to your home diocese. This is a place that's formed you, that's shaped you, that's poured into you. Hmm. And I don't know, I consider it in a lot of ways like giving back, giving back to the community that has given so much to you. And I, I just think it's been a beautiful thing. It's not something I expected to do, but, you know, was called to come back to. And I'm just really grateful for it. I think we have a lot of thoughts on this topic. I think maybe that could be another podcast is just, yeah. uh, like, I, I know we've talked about subsidiarity, you know, which is mm-hmm. uh, favoring the local community. Um, but I think we could flesh that out a little more in another so, topic. So what you're saying is that's not today's topic. That's not. It is not. Oh, what is today's topic then? Um, ooh, you're giving me the, the, the yeah, label you're, responsibility. You're trying to take so. a drink of water and I did not want <laughs> okay, you to take a drink no. of water. So I'm going to ask you the topic. Yeah. Uh, it's a topic that's been a long time coming, I think. And it's, uh, that's true. books we think that you should read before you die. That's right. Yeah. And we've, you know, we've talked about a lot of books on this podcast and, but I think this is going to have a little bit of a f- different focus in terms of, I think what we're trying to do in this podcast is come up with a list of books with, at least this is how I was thinking about it, with universal appeal. And again, with that title that, that you uh, so wonderfully created, Books to Read Before You Die, there's a there's a sense of importance and urgency to these books that, you know, there are books that have impacted me a lot that aren't on this list, um, and they're great books, but... I think we're trying to, yeah, trying to just come up with a list of, of books that are high on that list and are prioritized. I don't know. While I was doing this, while I was trying to list, I actually thought this was, I told you before we started, this was 
the hardest thing I'd ever done. <laughs> yeah. And I was a little hyperbolic. But what I felt like is, you know, when you read like the acknowledgements in a, in a book and often the author will start out by saying, I'm about to attempt to do something really difficult because I know I'm going to leave somebody out. Right. And that's how I felt with trying to narrow down this to, to a list of, you know, four or five books is that there are books that I know I've left off that have profoundly impacted me. And I, I feel I feel like I have sinned against the author to not leave them on this right. list. So I don't know. This is a very difficult, like personally difficult thing for me. I don't know why. Yeah, it is. I'm I'm the same way. That's a really good analogy, the acknowledgement section of a book. But uh, I, I think these books that I've picked, I'm, I know at least in my present life, I'm particularly passionate about. Um, and uh, same with me. There are books that I have read that I, I think people should read. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to pick. Let's... Uh, Let's trust that the good Lord is going yeah. to uh, to uh, bear fruit in these books that we've selected here. Yeah, and I think, I guess the common thread for me is these are all books that have made my list that I have either read multiple times or plan to read multiple times. So they're books, yeah, with that kind of strong appeal that I'm going to go back to and see myself have become so much a part of my spirituality that I see myself continuing to go back to. The theme I noticed for yours is they're all fiction. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I've noticed that too. I, I think that makes sense, especially in my recent reading life. I've really, you know, when I was young, I was a big reader. I, I read, you know, when I was 11 or 12 or so, it was kind of my prime reading time. But I read lots of fiction, but it wasn't, you know, serious fiction, quote unquote. It was, um, you know, things like just popular fiction, you know, fantasy or whatever it was. So um, these books are all fiction, but they're more or less more serious literature you yeah. know so uh yeah. um i've just become more more serious in, in my reading in my recent life and um yeah fiction seems to stay with me since it mm-hmm. tends to stay in my heart a little bit more uh more deeply and a little bit longer um and the images from fiction tend to uh um, just change me more so than just reading a, a non-fictional sentence or passage yeah um so for whatever reason we can flesh that yeah. out a little more maybe but all right, well, let's let's get going through the list here. Do you do you want to start? Or you want me to start? You go. I'll go. All right. So my number my number one book on the list. I never really doubted putting this book on the list. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before. I don't think so. Maybe in passing. But my first my first the first book on my list is the story of a soul by Saint Therese of Lisieux. And now, so this is a book that I've read. I think I've read it three times. And it's one that I've at least, uh, I will frequently go back to um, and read as spiritual reading. And I actually had the same experience as Bishop Barron and a number of other people that I've talked to, of men that I've talked to reading this. And that is that the first time it's a little bit underwhelming for, particularly for men. Usually women will just devour it. Many women will just devour it. And they're like, oh, this is great. I love the little flower. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that was not my experience. I had heard things, great things about St. Therese going into it. And my first time through it, I liked it, didn't love it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think I planned on going back and reading it again. But when I did read it again, was when, and, and just kind of background of it, this is just her autobiography, essentially. It's the story of her life. She died at 24. She uh, died from tuberculosis, spent the age of 16 to 24 in a convent, um, and died somewhat prematurely, but in the last years of her life, her mother superior had her 
start a journal essentially and this journal was the story of her life and it you know was published posthumously and has impacted many 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 souls and therese comes from a devout family her parents are now saints um one of her siblings is is potentially like her cause is open or something like that and a very very devout family and i think what this book the story of a soul demonstrates is what it looks like to live a life entirely for the Lord, entirely for the Lord. And for her, it was really from a very young age um, that she lived entirely for the Lord, even though it was a constant conversion. Um, But at at some point in her diary, her spiritual director told her, she, she records that her spiritual director told her that she had never committed a mortal sin. Um, after she d- did a general confession. And that's just the life of, of great holiness, of great sanctity, being set apart for the service of the word that I think she lived. That's beautiful. Yeah. I have to say, I have never read uh, from the writings of St. Therese, at least not. I mean, I've read things that she's Are written. Are you Catholic? But <laughs> I, I am one of those people, I think, one of those men in particular that I just, I haven't read her and Whenever I hear of someone reading here, I go, that's nice, but yeah. I just haven't have had a desire really to open right. her, her story. And uh, so maybe I just, I'm one of those that needs to be converted and I'll yeah. really love well, it when I read it. Well, let me attempt to convert you then. Okay. So what, the reason I didn't get to this yet, but when I read it the second time, what struck me about it is I read it at a time where I was undergoing a real spiritual darkness in my heart, um, real desolation, really for the first time. And I remembered vaguely that Therese kind of wrestled with this late in her life. But so I revisited, I revisited the book and read, reread just that kind of that dark period in her life. And oh my goodness, I did not realize how dark it was. The, the spiritual desolation that she had, the, the feeling of being totally abandoned by God in the latter years of her life, you know, similar to the, like the 30 years Mother Teresa, you know, famously mm-hmm. experienced. Um, and, you know, for Therese, it was much shorter because she died. But it was just so profound. And the strength of will to persevere in love of the Lord in the midst of those feelings of darkness and abandonment, it was, it was a masculine, I mean, I mean, this is, yeah, forgive the... <laughs> ascribing the word masculine to St. Therese, but it was seemingly, it appealed to my masculine heart, yeah. the strength of will that she had in, in in those latter years. And so that's, you know, this is the experience I've talked to with other men of kind of encountering her in a deeper way the second time through is, is I think, really identifying with that strength of will that she had. Hmm. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah, I I know that that's one of those books that I'm I'm going to quote unquote have to read yeah. one day. Um, I'm waiting for that that sign to put yeah. it up at the top of my list. Yeah. You know, so we'll see. And this we'll isn't see. it, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Well, I'll add this because I know we got to move on, but I'll add this yeah. as well. I hate the like super sappy sentimental devotion to saint therese okay that's not what it's about for me at all i hate the novenas like okay (laughs) this is my hot take on therese like i love her but i just have not had good experiences with novenas to saint therese the the whole send me a flower thing like it just yeah that in in combination with yeah i think novenas in general i'm not a Mm -hmm. a fan of but we don't have to go go there right now 
Dang. Another conversation, I guess. Cool. All right, Nick, what's the first book on your list? All right, here we go. Number one is A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Not um, to be confused with the Garfield movie, A Tale of Two Kitties. <laughs> is that a thing? That's actually a movie. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah, it came out when I, was, when I was a wee lad. Is it on your list? No. Oh, okay. All right. It's a good movie, though. I, I oh, it's a movie. It's a long time. It. All it was, right. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah, okay. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Uh, yeah, quick summary of that. Um, it's essentially a love triangle. Uh, hmm. Lucy, the um, the main char- one of the main characters, uh, falls in love with this guy named Charles. This is in the midst of the French Revolution. Um, Sydney, who is really the the protagonist of the novel, is the the odd man out. Uh, Charles hmm. and Lucy get married, and Sydney is really this this lawyer who had a lot of promise growing up. Um, and his upbringing was, you know, very talented and just kind of ends up being, quote unquote, a, uh, a wash, just a, mm-hmm. um, a guy who didn't live up to his expectations. Um, he's just very purposeless. He's kind of a drunk, um, you know, that kind of a thing. Long story short, uh, I'm going to spoil the plot here, so warning, uh, but long story short, uh, Charles gets caught up in the French Revolution. He's sentenced to be hang or to be, um, uh, get his head cut off by the guillotine. Um, and Sydney decides to give his life uh, and switch places with Charles and sacrifice himself so that Lucy and Charles can be together. Um, so um, I think the reason, a couple of reasons why this is on my list and really at the top of my list uh, to to read is a couple of things. One, Charles Dickens is an unbelievable writer. Uh, yeah, I agree. Do you have a passage there that you're you're well? You're continue. Gonna okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. He. I mean, the beginning of this novel and the end really are some of the most famous lines in literature. Uh, it was the best of times. It was mm-hmm. the worst of times. It, you know, so on and so forth. That's the beginning. Um, maybe you're familiar with it. But also, too, I have never not yet. I'm, I'm still relatively young in my reading, but I I have never read anything that shows the example of moving from being a human being without purpose to moving from a human being of the highest purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is self-sacrifice. The only way to life, to fullness of life, is to to die to oneself, to give oneself away. Um, And there is no better book that I know of, um, excluding the Bible, I suppose, Mm -hmm. that that shows this better, this movement from purposelessness to self-sacrifice. Yeah. So this book, I admit, I have not read. Um, actually, I've read a few chapters. I started this book, gotcha. and I actually quite quite liked what I read. I think when I started it, it was within the last year, because uh, I know it's one of your favorite books, if not your potentially favorite work of fiction. And so it's it's something I will get through eventually. I think I just started at a time where I was also reading several other fiction books and nonfiction books, which typically when I do that, I... It, it's a bad recipe to, for finishing them. but uh, So yeah, I didn't finish, but I was really struck just in the first few chapters at the, the writing of yeah. just the, the poetic nature, I guess, is, is that, yeah, if that's fair so. to say in, in, in prose. But 
um, yeah, just the beautiful nature, I'd say, of, of his writing style. And I don't know, was there a, were you going to quote anything from this in particular? Um, there are a couple quotes that really resonate with me about uh, Sidney and kind of the, the way, mm-hmm. the situation that he's in, kind of mm-hmm. as he moves from purposelessness to self-sacrifice, like I was saying. But the one, one thing I did want to mention, this is kind of a funny snippet, but the reason I ended up picking up Tale of Two Cities is actually from like maybe my favorite movie, The Dark Knight Rises, hmm. um, the third Batman movie. I think we've talked about that on this podcast before, maybe in the more than entertained episode. Yeah, briefly, um, not a lot. Yeah, yeah so um, anyway, at the end of that movie when Batman, you know, quote-unquote dies, gives his life for the city. Spoiler. Yep, oops. Um, they read the end of Tale of Two Cities at his essentially funeral. Wow. Um, the Commissioner Gordon, he opens up you know, the book, and he reads from the end, it is a far, far better thing that I do that I have ever done. It is a far, mm. far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Um, wow. And I thought that was particularly beautiful, and I went, where is that from? That's really beautiful. Who wrote that? And it was the end of A Tale of Two Cities, and I said, maybe I'll pick it up and read it. Huh. Uh, so, and it uh, changed your life. Yeah, it's a life-changing book. Wow. Seriously, it really is. There's not a lot of books that I... I think we should use that term more more uh, stringently sometimes. Uh, but I do believe that one is changed by reading a book like this. So um, this was life-changing. It was. It, yeah. It's a, um, a universal example of how to live. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. And it just inspires me more to, to pick it up. Um, it's interesting, the end, because I know the beginning is very famous. And, and what struck yeah. me when I started is, you know, you hear the beginning line is, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Uh-huh. But it's like a whole, that sentence goes on. Yeah. It's like a whole paragraph and it's beautiful. Should I read it? Yeah, you can yeah, read okay, it. You read, read some of it. I think it's kind of long. Maybe read yeah, some of it. Uh, and just just the, first, the first sentence, I think it is. Yeah. It's a long sentence. But, <laughs> yeah. And I got to pull my chair up here. Okay, go for here it. we go. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to, directly to heaven. We were all going directly the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. That's the first sentence. It's a whole paragraph. Gorgeous. What Beautiful. a master of the of the pen, as they say. Yeah, big uh, good penmanship. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next. All right, let's move on. All right. My number two. Oh, I'm excited about this one. Okay. Um, also a book I've read multiple times and will continue to. I revisit it in particular seasons of my life where I need it. This book is Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. You haven't read it, have you? No, I actually on your list I have not read any of these, which is sad. Have I read I've at least read a couple on yours. Okay. Um Yeah, Orthodoxy. Okay, let me let me how to summarize this. Okay. So Orthodoxy's probably potentially Chesterton's greatest work, which is a hard thing to say because he has a lot of great works. Probably his most famous work. It is um, and somewhat apologetic, somewhat kind of a manifesto of his, his newfound faith because he was a convert from kind of atheism, agnosticism to Anglicanism to uh, Catholicism. And he, this is book, this book he wrote, he first wrote a book called Heretics. And he was known for kind of criticizing 
you know, flaws in people's belief systems, particularly in, you know, the secular modernists of, of the 20th century. And he wrote this book and he kind of, he kind of explains this in the book. He says, you know, people would often ask him, well, what do you believe? Like, what is like, you're, you're good at criticizing these other beliefs, but what is it that, that you believe? And so this book, he, he kind of writes as a response to that. And he portrays the faith in a really beautiful way. He, he describes it in the introduction or in the first chapter as this. He says, he kind of, he always longed to write a story or a novel of some sort that was about a man who sails off on a ship um, in search of a distant land, leaves England uh, on the ship, and gets steered off course and ends up back in England. But he doesn't know he's in England. So he explores England anew, where he's always, you know, it's his home, as if he's never encountered it before. And he sees it as this amazing land, right? And he says this is an analogy for his discovery of the Orthodox, you know, lowercase o, Orthodox Catholic faith. Is it was there all along. It's, you know, the ancient it's an ancient religion. It's a very traditional belief system. And when he set out, he said he kind of set out to find his own heresy and his own like, you know, worldview that was totally unique but true. And he discovered an ancient worldview and he discovered that it was more beautiful um, and more true than he could have ever imagined. And I think that's a good kind of way of introducing someone to, to this book. But I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that for now? Yeah, I, I, that's beautiful. I have never heard it laid out like that before, the book. Um, yeah, for me personally, I, I have read one novel by G.K. Chesterton, uh, Man Alive. That's right, yeah. But uh, I haven't read much of his stuff either. And I think I'm a little bit scared by him, particularly orthodoxy, because I just, there's so much to read. I, I know that I'm, it's probably going to take me a while to read orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of get scared because I know he's very dense, you know, just as a... Yeah. Uh, just as a, from on a human level. Yeah, he's dense in a sense. He's Ooh, dense in... The, Dr. Uh, Seuss over there. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> go ahead. Um, he's dense in the sense that every word goes a long way. Every sentence goes a long way. So I kind of would relate it to, to some good like spiritual writers who you read a sentence or you read a paragraph and you just have to like right. contemplate it before you move on. It's not dense in the sense that like love and responsibility is dense and that it's, you know, like very philosophically heavy. That's not the case with orthodoxy, but it's just, yeah, there's so many moments where it's just like, I got to pause and take this in. And my favorite chapter in this book is probably the last thing I'll I'll say on this is um, it's chapter two called the madman. And this is potentially my favorite chapter in, of anything that I've ever read. And this book is a defense of belief, and in particular, a defense of free will um, in the face of a deterministic atheism of the 20th century that was common in a lot of the writers and philosophers he interacted with. And in this chapter, as well as in the book as a whole, he defends faith and he defends the belief in human free will um, as something that is very sane, um, he, he kind of contrasts, it's called the madman because he essentially, um, really plays this out really beautifully in, in showing that the man who relies totally on his reason alone, the man who, you know, is totally rational and believes that, you know, reason is going to solve our problems, just all getting together and using our, our, our reason well, um, 
is actually a very uh, a very harmful thing, right? And it actually leads to insanity, hmm. is what he says. And so he says it actually is um, mysticism. In the end of this chapter, he says mysticism is what keeps man sane. It's this understanding that there are things that are incomprehensible. And if I maintain this belief that I can understand, I can comprehend everything with the use of my reason, he says it's like trying to fit the heavens into your head and your head explodes. Hmm. On the contrast, he says the poet, the mystic and the poet is the solution. He says for the poet, the poet seeks only to get his head into the heavens. And as a result, he remains sane. Hmm. And you have to read it for yourself because I can't say it like he can. Um, but I think the case he makes for the sanity of religious faith and religious belief is um, what makes this book so powerful. And I think one of our earlier episodes was actually you reading this chapter. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it was. I don't advertise it because I'm not exactly a professional uh, audiobook <laughs> yeah, reader. But okay. yeah, yeah, you can check that out if you want to hear an audio version. Yeah. Hey, so real quick, what is what is the approachability of orthodoxy? Would you say someone who's just beginning in the faith should read it or could read it? Or what's what's the approachability of orthodoxy? That's a good question. Um, I'd say if you're, I'd say an adult, I wouldn't recommend it probably to a high school, somebody much younger than 17, 18. Um, I think it's approachable. I think it will speak particularly to anybody who's ever wrestled with um just the ability of reason to, to comprehend reality and to comprehend God, um, I think it will it will speak volumes to you if, if you identify with that at all. Right. Um, but no, I don't think it's super difficult. I would I would say it's it's difficult enough that I'd say you know an adult who is somewhat intellectually minded um, is is the approachability level. I'd say. Gotcha. All right. What's your number two? Number two, numero dos. Um. Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Ah, he's all right. He's average. Six out of ten writer, in my opinion. No, I uh, I think, so We for our listeners, we've had a whole episode on Dostoevsky. Uh, That's right. Pro, what is it, probably a year ago now, six months to yeah. a year? The years, the months run together, seems like. But, so maybe we won't go into too much detail here. But mm-hmm. um, just to speak a little bit about Dostoevsky again. He is maybe my favorite writer of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, his mm-hmm. his writing is mine too. Yeah, uh, and even it's funny. I think about this. Even when translated into English, he's my favorite writer of all time. So no telling if I could read Russian, how beautiful it would be. You know? Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. But um, yes, he's just so interested in life's most important things. Um, he just has the ability to articulate those things so well. Um, in a way that just makes me feel so understood, um, yeah. which is so beautiful. Um, yeah, he just understands the human experience. Yeah. But Crime and Punishment um, is about, uh, it's one of the most famous stories in the mm-hmm. world, but it's about uh, this guy named Raskolnikov. He's a college student in St. Petersburg in Russia. Um, mm-hmm. has this, essentially, I'll just kind of brush on it, but essentially he just has this worldview that says there are some people on earth who, because of their quote-unquote greatness, have the the um, ability to uh, do things that are outside of the moral law. Uh, mm-hmm. That is their, their right as being a great member of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can do things outside of morality. Um, and so he decides to test this theory because he thinks he's one of those people. Mm-hmm. And naturally. He, yeah, naturally. And he uh, um, murders um, 
an old woman pawnbroker and mm-hmm. her sister or her yeah. uh, what, sister or cousin or something. Um, Hits her with a crowbar, right? An axe. An axe. Even yeah. worse. Axe. Yeah. He, um, he, over the head. Yeah. He kills her over the head with an axe and hits her sister in the back or something. It's very brutal. Yeah. Um, and the story is very unique because that happens right at the beginning. Um, yeah. And the story. like 100 pages in. Or yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Probably 20% of the way through Which the book. Which is the I beginning guess. of a death story. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, and the story is about how he just simply cannot live with this sin that the he's guilt. committed mm-hmm. um just the the guilt and just what it does to his his psyche as a human being and how he just can't keep it in and he um essentially he just loses his sanity trying to um keep in this thing that he claims to have been able to do without any consequences mm-hmm. um so um absolutely gripping story uh, it's a it's a absolutely a page turner by the way uh is it? I think it is. Uh, right. I could be wrong. Um, okay. No, I will say, let me caveat that really quick while we're on the topic. I will say, if if the potential reader is someone who is used to reading books like uh, Chronicles of Narnia mm-hmm. and, um, you know, just young, you know, young adult, you know, fiction kind of popular yeah. page turning, that kind of yeah. stuff, then yeah. that's probably not going to be It's not a page insane. turner in that sense, but right. it does have a gripping plot. It does. And is philosophically fascinating novel um, it is, yeah. in its in the way it speaks into human nature. So I think, yeah, I think the caveat with Russian novels is that they are difficult in the sense that the writing style's odd. It, you know, the Russian names can kind of trip you up because they all have three different names. And so there are a number of things that make it difficult. And, but that being said, so it, I think you have to work at it a little bit more than maybe mm-hmm. your typical book. But that work is rewarded. It is rewarded very well. Amen. Amen. It's worth it. Yeah, great literature is worth the work. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I think why Crime and Punishment resonates with me so much is um, along the way, Raskolnikov, the main character, meets this woman, Sonia, who mm-hmm. ends up you know, being his uh, significant other during, you know, over the course of the... Um, over the course of the novel, and she's a prostitute. She's been forced to kind of move into prostitution uh, because of her family's poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story is about him, really, but also about them together, about they're just like the redemptive power yeah, of charity. Yeah, encounter um, grace. Yeah, yeah these are, this is a, a murderer and a prostitute. Um, and together they... Uh, encounter one another's love and in a deeper sense they encounter the love of christ yeah um which is it is gorgeously depicted you guys you want you want to love you want to talk about a love story uh like don't go to these you know Hmm. modern movies where with six sex scenes yeah and call that a love story uh you want to talk about real love real charity uh tale of two cities crime and punishment wow um wow yeah, uh, that's well, so excellently put. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I love that, Nick. Yeah, it, it gosh, it just really convicts me more and more about that book, Crime and Punishment, because, as you know, my favorite Dostoevsky novel and potentially favorite novel. Although interestingly, it's not on this list. Um, I think because mainly because we've talked about it before, I left it off. But the Brothers Karamazov, hmm. and I don't know the way you describe Crime and Punishment. I think makes it rival the brothers k in terms of um i think it's it's universal appeal mm-hmm. and uh but both of those books man if again they're work but if you can read them 
it, it will reward the effort that it takes to read them. They are the insight that, that this man, Dostoevsky, has into human nature. It's staggering. Um, and the way he articulates it, oh, it's amazing. Staggering. It's, a good <laughs> it's word. unbelievable, yeah. 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 Um, great. Yeah. And I, I think I'll just say this. I think this quote, it's in the beginning of the Brothers K. I think it's that might be the epitaph on his... No, it's not the epitaph. The epitaph on his grave is, is a scripture quote about a grain of wheat. But... Um, at the beginning of this book, there's this quote that he wrote in a letter to his brother. He talks about man is a mystery that needs to be unraveled. Um, and I think that's what he does Beautiful. In, his, in these books is he unravels the mystery of man. So true. Go read it. Crime and punishment. All right. So my number three, also very excited about is mere Christianity by Clive Staples Lewis. Ah, Clive. Um, I always joke with my students when I teach about CS Lewis that, if my name were Clive Staples, I would go by CS too. <laughs> um, but he actually didn't go by CS. He wrote by CS. He went by Jack. No way. Yeah, little known fact about CS Lewis. He he was Jack to his friends. Well, I would too if my name was Clive. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I'm gonna name my kid Clive and call him Jack. Now. It'd be kind of nice to go by Staples, but anyway, go Sta- ahead. I mean, good name Staples. <laughs> what up, Staples? <laughs> Anyway, all right. I want to introduce Mere Christianity by way of a little bit of biography of C.S. Lewis. It's not a biography. It's a book of apologetics. But, you know, Lewis is somebody who was an atheist. Um, He he lost his mom at a young age. And as a result, um, partially as a result of that um, and his studies in, in upper school, he became an atheist, but a writer and an English professor. And he, uh, eventually became Christian. And he wrote this book. This book is probably the, like, basically the defense of his Christianity. Um, And he, it's called Mere Christianity because he wants to focus on defending what he thinks of as, you know, the things that all Christians agree on. And I think that was a good decision in this book because he avoids getting lost in the weeds of a particular subset of Christian belief and defends Christianity as a whole as the appropriate worldview, essentially. And he starts with first principles, but he does this in a, um, a very approachable way. It's probably the most approachable and honest apologetic for the Christian faith that I've read in the sense that a high schooler can read it. My, my 14-year-old high school students read this book, and they, they have to work a little bit, but they understand it. And he starts from first principles at why he came first to believe in God, and I think makes a really compelling case for it over the alternative. And then he works his way up to the person of Jesus Christ. And kind of the heart of the book is his famous trilemma of like, what's staggering about the Christian claim is that if you accept, you know, the historicity of the gospels and and the words that Jesus said as things that he actually said, then it really leaves you with the options of Jesus is either Lord of all creation as he claimed to be, or he's a lunatic or a liar. And uh, that's kind of the crux of his argument there, but he, I think he builds up that argument in just a beautiful way. It's not a perfect, I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend it's, you know, um, just like Aquinas's proofs don't prove beyond every shadow of a doubt that God exists, but I think it is, is like I said, the most honest and approachable um, apologetic I've read for the Christian faith. And it's also a good introduction to Lewis. Um, 
he one of the beautiful things is in his fiction he kind of plays out the ideas that he writes about in his nonfiction. so you can see ideas from mere christianity in um in some of his other writings like the chronicles of narnia and uh and even some of his other nonfiction writings as well but um wonderful book from from mr lewis great yeah i've read several of lewis's novels uh, not novels books um and that is actually one that I haven't read uh, again. So uh, that's also on my figurative list. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've, I've heard great things about about that uh, yeah. that book. And I will say everything that I have read of C.S. Lewis um, is uh, he's very, very witty, which I really appreciate yeah. about him. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I don't want to use the word simple, but mm-hmm. he has like a simple wit to him that I really appreciate. Yeah, that's uh, it's right. It's very approachable. That's that's a good description. And yeah, all his other books. I mean, I put Mere Christianity here. I very well could have put a number of other books um, of his, whether the Abolition of Man or The Great Divorce. They're, they're all, I think, equal in impact. Um, but I think Mere Christianity is the most at the heart of, of what he was mm-hmm. about. So, yeah. And just a, yeah, great man. Great man, great author. Hmm. What's your number three, Nick? Number three from C.S. Lewis's friend. Joke and roke and roke and token. Ah, yeah, Zachary John likes to say. <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings. Joke and roke um, John Old Rule Ralph. Nah, I'm not even going to try. I don't, even know. Like I don't know his real name anymore. I've said joke yeah. and roke and roke yeah, and token if, so many times. If my name were John Ronald Rule, whatever, I would go by J.R.R. too. <laughs> That's right. Or I'd probably go by Jack. Yeah, maybe. I don't What? I don't think he went by Jack, but okay. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Um, so the Lord of the Rings, listen, um, there's a lot of people and I am maybe one of those. I'm, I'm still deciding. I'm, I'm still, again, relatively young in my reading life, but it's maybe the greatest book ever written. Mm. Um, maybe the, let me, let me take that back. Maybe the greatest work of fiction ever written. Um, yeah, it's not the, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah. it is, I mean, I don't think I could say anything more high than that. You know, uh, it is again staggering to use that word. Um, just the the beauty and the truth and the goodness and whatever else is in Lord of the Rings because it has just about everything. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I, should I give a plot summary of Lord of the Rings? Maybe I should. Uh, so um, it's set in fantasy land. Uh, <laughs> that's gonna make a lot of the uh uh lord of the rings faithful uh cringe squirm yeah but middle earth is the name of well it's actually earth technically is it okay yeah yeah uh the third age of middle earth i think of of whatever Mm -hmm. i'm gonna butcher it so i'm gonna stop now but um essentially um frodo who is you know uh and his companions or uh who are hobbits these you know figurative uh um small creatures little people yeah um are charged with, or Frodo is charged with in particular, of depositing, of transferring the quote-unquote ring. Um, He's tasked with this mission. Yeah, with this mission of transferring the ring yeah. to Mount Doom and destroying the ring, which is uh, Sauron, the, the evil protagon- uh, antagonist. Um, that's his kind of uh, power instrument if he doesn't mm-hmm. have it. Um, game over essentially so uh he's been charged with frodo with transferring the ring to mount doom to destroy sauron's chances of taking power yeah and this ring has powers yeah it does yeah the ring is i mean it's complicated is basically the uh is basically the gist uh the ring is has powers of invisibility but it also has um 
very addictive, um, uh, very uh, sin-provoking powers. It tends to essentially destroy the lives of whoever yeah. whoever takes it and uses it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the the idea there is that it's very figurative of sin. Um, and that, that kind of leads into the other theme of uh, Tolkien in, in Lord of the Rings um, depicts the Catholic faith and depicts the story of salvation, the story of Christianity um, in a way that is essentially underneath the surface, but becomes very, very clear mm-hmm. over the course of the story. So, um, yeah, quick introduction to the plot. Yeah. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, it's just such a rich book. I mean, it's it's culturally relevant. It's historically relevant. You know, it's in dialogue with a lot of other, you know, it's rooted in, a lot of it's rooted in some Norse mythology, uh, as well as, you know, the ring is similar to like the ring of Gyges, which goes back to ancient Greece, this <laughs> ring of invisibility that, was a temptation to to anyone who had it towards power. And so it plays with all these themes that are culturally relevant, that are relevant to, you know, I think any era of human society. And it, man, you, you see Gollum, you know, I think is, is a main character here who uh, is just completely possessed by the ring, right? And so, yeah, it's just beautiful. Another, I mean, similar to Dostoevsky and like he gets human nature, it does. Um, and, and the struggle and the good and evil that kind of lies in, in the heart of every man. There's so much to to really, you know, touch on in Lord of the Rings. It's hard. Yeah. But I think my my kind of takeaway from the Lord of the Rings, I, I read it for the first time you know, a couple years back during the midst of the quarantine, you know, during when we were all kind of locked up because of COVID. And um, what really resonated with me was, one, the story is really, you know, as Frodo and his companions kind of move on this path from where they were to Mount Doom, it's very much translatable to the, you know, the path of our story, of our, you know, movement from uh, from where we are to, to heaven, to, to the completion of our mission. Um, so there's this obvious kind of allusion to, you know, treading along the path as a Christian. And uh, it's just filled with hope filled with hope um there's constantly times you know throughout the novel or throughout the book where um frodo and you know sam his companion are faced with almost certain failure you know mm-hmm. they're they're yeah. they're probably going to fail um you know transferring the ring to where they're supposed to transfer yeah. it and but there's this you know it's articulated directly sometimes in quotes but mm-hmm. you know there's this this idea that i have to like i have to try like even if yeah. it seems like there's no hope, like hmm. like failure would be quitting. Like yeah. I have to put one foot in front of the other, yeah. and I have to, despite not being able to see what I have, you know, what's in front of me, or despite not being able to, you know, maybe even believe that I can get through it, I, I have to put one foot in front of the other, and I yeah. have to try. Um, and that's what propels them at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just gorgeous. And so, is, are these Catholic novels, Lord of the Rings? Uh it's complicated. <laughs> I, know, I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. So yes, it is a it is a Catholic novel. Um, did did Tolkien intend it for Catholic audiences? Certainly not. Uh, he intended it for you know humanity, really. Yeah. Um, but it is bleeding with with Catholic imagery. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's not not everybody realizes. I think I think that there is a there is kind of a mainstream reading of the Lord of the Rings that. I think maybe misses some of the deeper, the ways in which his Catholicism shaped what he wrote. But I think that shows to the universal appeal and his understanding of human nature that hmm. it, it isn't, you know, it is, it is found on people of all different backgrounds to be, uh, 
you know, immensely powerful book. Right. Yeah. And would you say the movies, this is the last, oh. last question on this, would you say the movies are a, a good representation of the book? Yeah, they do a great job in the movies. I think personally, everything feels a little bit rushed, I think, just because it's a movie and, you know, Tolkien yeah. has time to flush yeah. out things in the book. Mm-hmm. But that's understandable. I think they do a great job, honestly. Yeah. That's my short take. Yeah, they're incredible. And I, I watched them, and maybe this is, you know, a different perspective because I watched them before reading the series. And it, yeah, they, man, they were powerful. To, to watch them the first time yeah. through and not really know what was going to happen is is very, very impactful. Very impactful. Yeah. And but, also, but going back and reading them, which I'm in the middle yeah. of doing, has also been um there's something in the books that still like you don't get in the movies and that's i think yeah. the beauty of of tolkien's writing even the things they change in the movie too they do change a, a few things mm-hmm. from the movie the, from the book to the movies and those changes that they make i think they get it exactly right yeah um so they, i think they do a great job yeah all right let's move it on move on so my number four and i think we're gonna have to stop at four let's do it no for problem. each i'll let you do your fourth but you know okay um, so my fourth, and I, I think I, this was where I struggled. The first three were pretty, you know, pretty certain. And then I had about 112 books fighting for the number four <laughs> spot. Um, but I chose something that I think also has universal appeal in terms of like, I think for the sake of their spiritual life, every person should read this book. Um, and this book is Searching for and Maintaining Peace by Father Jacques Philippe. And Father Jacques Philippe is a contemporary uh, spiritual writer. He's a French priest, uh, I think like Community of the Beatitudes is the name of his religious order. And he also wrote a book, Interior Freedom, which I know you've read. And uh, it's on par. I, I Honestly, Interior Freedom is, is, I think, almost equally impactful as Searching for and Maintaining Peace. But I think I started with Searching for and Maintaining Peace and... Uh, I think it's a little bit more, maybe just slightly broader in its universal appeal. And I read this book. I remember, I can picture right now where I got it. And it was um, a focus missionary, Rachel Coffold. She was our team director my first year, my junior year, the first year we had a full focus team in Birmingham. And it was like our last mass of the year at Samford. And the missionaries came. And I was really grateful that they would come because they, uh, they weren't really assigned to us technically, but they would still come and reach out at Samford. And and Rachel left me this book, and I think she wrote wrote it the you know a note in the, the beginning, and just said, "Hey, you know, once you have this book, um, and that means a lot, right?" Like I, at this point, she became a good friend later, but you know, I don't want to say I barely knew her. Like I started developing a, a, a friendship with her, but. I was not expecting to get this this book from her, um, and I read it. I read it pretty quickly that summer, and uh, it wow it. I'd say it was life changing. Yeah, it changed my life in terms of um, the theme here. Essentially, I, if you had to boil it down to something, is that peace is the number one priority in the spiritual life. Is that God wants us to be at peace. And we should work to do whatever possible in order to be at peace and at rest in our souls. And that was a really consoling thing for me um, because I think a lot of times we fight we fight with lies that, you know, and sometimes it's because of our conscience and real convictions, but that God doesn't want us to be at peace, right? And so 
Um, and Father Jacques Philippe, like he could not be more clear or emphatic about the essential nature of peace. Like without peace, a Christian cannot discern. And so we need to fight, fight like we're crazy about it in order to accomplish the state of peace. And I say accomplish, obviously, I mean to surrender to grace Hmm. Um, because it is only through grace that we can attain this, but it requires a lot of wrestling, I think, on our part. Hmm. So it's a really beautiful book. Beautiful. Wow. And you, I know you've read Interior Freedom, and in, I'd say it's similar. Um, I think I think Interior Freedom was probably a good like second step after reading Searching for and Maintaining Peace, um, because it's similar. It, you know, he tells the story of people who have this interior freedom that is also a state of peace that, regardless of external circumstances, they, you know, they they maintain, hmm. um, which is a hard thing to do. Yeah, that is hard. So. That's my fourth book. Again, I do think it is something that everyone should read because of, um, yeah, anyone serious about the spiritual life at the very least needs to read that book. Hmm. All right, what's your number four? So I think I'm going to skip Father Elijah, oh, believe it or all not. All right. Um, Father Elijah is— Well, you just mentioned it, so you really skipped yeah, it. I, yeah, so Father Elijah by Michael O'Brien is maybe my favorite book, um, but in terms of universal appeal— I'm a little bit hesitant. Okay. Um, so I'm a little bit hesitant there. So okay. I'm going to skip and go to okay. Sherlock Holmes. All right. By uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, yeah, if my name were Arthur Conan, I would go by... Wait, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> Sherlock too. yeah. <laughs> by Sir. <laughs> yeah, sir, there you go. That's right, if my yeah. name were Arthur Conan, I'd go by Sir. <laughs> anyway, uh, so... Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. Um, this is a little bit of an interesting one pick, I think, just because it's not like crime and punishment. I mean, it's not like a like a deep work of literature. It's um, it's it's not kind of in that category. I would say um, they are all time classics, obviously. But just you want to talk about universal appeal? Um, think about how ingrained in the in the really international culture yeah, of everyone, the West. Everyone knows Sherlock. Yeah. Uh, just think about how ingrained it is in the culture of the West. You know, Sherlock Holmes is the first figure that you think about in, in detective fiction or in, yeah. uh, really just in the culture in general, you know, that he's very popular still, um, uh, written in the 1800s. So, um, I got to reading those, um, uh, I don't know, six months, probably a year ago now, actually reading the stories and, um, they're just fascinating. They're just fascinating. Mm-hmm. He has some longer, you know, no- novellas, I think you call them. Um, he has some, you know, short stories as well. Um, Sh- Sherlock is just a, a fascinating, fascinating figure. Um, uh, he's very eccentric. Um, one thing that Sir, that Sir does <laughs> is he, um, um, he depicts Sherlock Holmes in a way that is just incredibly mysterious. I mean, you could read mm. short story after short story after short story, and you're constantly learning things about Holmes, and you're you're mm-hmm. constantly like, oh, why is he doing that? That's odd. And, you know, oh, he knows this, and oh, he knows that. You're yeah. constantly opening up his character kind of over yeah. time, um, which is honestly fascinating. When the, and the, right. th- the theory there, the like, kind of the theory that I, I think is going on here is like, 
yeah, Holmes is enga- is solving all these mysteries, and he's, you know, with with Watson, his his partner, he's you know solving all these crazy, hard to solve crimes. But really, the mystery is him. He's mm. the one mm. um, that is kind of central yeah. to yeah. to the stories. Um, and that's really at the end of the day, the readers of Sherlock Holmes. He's really the figure. Uh, wow. You know, which is um, it's cool too. It's kind of fascinating, like delving into the to a human yeah. being like this and kind of knowing more and more. And um, anyway, so I found them to be really fun, really fun stories to just sit right. there and read, and reading for the pure pleasure of reading, and also too, like the depth of just understanding more about Holmes is fascinating. Yeah, that's powerful. I've never I've never heard Sherlock Holmes described in that way, and and I find that really appealing thing. It makes me think of. You know, I often associate this phrase with with Sherlock, and that's like the power of deduction, right? He talks about the power of deduction. And so in some ways, he's a very rationalistic, like in, intuitive and deductive thinker in the sense that he uses his reason to solve these mysteries, essentially, right? But the beautiful thing I think you, you captured is that there's still a sense of mystery mm-hmm. in these novels, even though like it's not like his his rationalism you know, gets rid of the mystery because the kind of new mystery emerges and that is the mind of Sherlock. Right. And that's a really beautiful thing. And I I think of our our friend Chesterton as well, who had a love for mystery novels. He wrote his own Father Brown stories, which I think are quite good. Uh, And he kind of adds a spiritual component to it Mm -hmm. because Father Brown is a priest detective and, um, you know, not to discredit Sherlock by any means, but I, I would also recommend the Father Brown stories, which retain that kind of, Mystery, but also reason, uh, reason unraveling the mystery. Hmm. And uh, yeah, there's something, something about mystery stories that I think are the intersection of both reason and mystery uh, is a beautiful thing. I think a universal appeal to human nature, certainly. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I've written a couple articles um, uh, on the More Than Entertained site with yeah. regard to this topic. Uh, I wrote an article... Um, a while ago on Sherlock Holmes and his stories. And mm-hmm. I also wrote an article on Agatha Christie's mystery novels. Oh, yeah, so that's another good a couple one. of the same, couple of the same, uh, uh, sort of criteria there. So check yeah. it out if you, uh, if you want. Right on. Well, we've done it. We've yeah. narrowed it down to a list of eight books to read before you die. And we, we snuck a few others in there. Yeah, just we did. To see yeah. why we did that. <laughs> I think we got about 12 books in there or more just yeah. by way of mention, but we narrowed it down to the top eight. And, uh, yeah, go read them. Honestly, I, I, any of these eight books, I, even knowing the ones that you recommended as well, I know that the reader will not be disappointed and I hope and believe that they will be life changing for you. So please add these to your list and, uh, don't limit yourself to this list because it's only eight books. Amen. I don't know. What else do you have to say to our... Um, Beautiful listeners. Another, hey, uh, I'll, maybe just to step back for a second, I, I would encourage anyone to to read more. Uh, mm-hmm. That has been mm-hmm. a really transformative experience for me in my life, and I know it's just hard to now because we have Netflix and we have Disney Plus, and we have you know it's just easier to turn that on and be fed. Um, it seems like the the reading experience is never going away, uh, and it's yeah. just so rewarding and so. Uh, um, I don't know, it just enters into the soul more for some reason. Yeah. And if it feels like work, as as you said before, it's it's worth the work. So I'd, I'd echo yeah. that encouragement. All right, man. Well, this has been good. 
I think we gotta we gotta rock and roll out of here. But uh, this has been fun, and we'll see you next time on Colloquium. Praise be Jesus Christ. Now and forever. Amen.